Hey everyone, Michael Amagon here with another episode of Esports Wrap. This week we're going to be having a conversation with a person who is a former gamer who just took his Gen Z esports company public. This is going to be a very interesting conversation though because he's been a little bit all over the place when it comes to the esports gaming and uh, well now what he's doing with his business, which is actually a number of things. So... With that in mind, I would like to introduce our guest, Stephen Sals, if I got that last name right. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, works. great. Stephen, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, yeah. I'm Stephen Sals. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Rivalry. We're an esports-focused sports book, launched in <clears throat> August of 2018, and have been operating since. And then me personally, used to play games when I was younger, like a lot of people my age. Uh, so nothing unique in that, but did pay, play semi-competitive in uh, Rainbow Six with my, my twin brother. And then we played, uh, we were very addicted to World of Warcraft for about four to five years, which is also pretty similar to a lot of people in my demographic. So yeah, played that game all the way into university and then stopped then, which was a good decision for a few different reasons. And then, <laughs> and then um, yeah, professionally went into capital markets. So I worked in investment banking, but on the, on the research side. So basically uh, providing and, um, writing research reports on different stocks and strategies and all this kind of stuff and then was continuing to play a lot of games mostly counter-strike and then got uh, interested in what was happening in the skins marketplaces so in 2012 valve released the arms deal updates so he had dota 2 and csgo skins trading was doing a bit of that just like myself and buying skins and then met these two guys ryan and kevin in 2015 out of 2015 i think that were running a place called uh, loot market which was one of the bigger marketplaces for Dota skins and then also CSGO skins and just kind of partnered up with them, left my job in capital markets and then started to raise money and develop what would become rivalry back then. Yeah. Okay. So I noticed you mentioned uh, loot market. I see yep. that it's currently offline. Is there a particular reason yes, it is. why you guys shuttered that? Uh, Valve shut us down. We didn't, uh, <laughs> we didn't, oh. we didn't, we didn't choose to shut it down, but it's was, yeah, I mean, us and a ton of the marketplaces in one shot, they basically shut us all down. There's a few that still operate. Honestly, what happened was this skins gambling, which we didn't do any skins betting, but skins gambling attracted like a huge amount of negative attention to the space. And then it was interesting because our whole thing, the same as it is at Rivalries, we're like very transparent and very out there and we say it like it is. And we were almost, that was almost to a fault because it put like a target on us. We were like the most vocal about all the things that were happening and being honest about everything. And again, we did not operate a skins market, uh, skins um, betting platform, but ultimately just drew tons of negative attention to the skins space, general marketplaces, gambling sites, whatever it may be. And then Valve just kind of went and started, you know, chopping people down, which which included us in 2017. That was it. That, mm, yeah, I remember that whole time. That was that was something. I know that got yeah. a lot of people frustrated, especially those persons that used to make some good money selling their skins yeah yeah it was that was weird it was just like a lot of weird characters it was just some people were doing it legitimately and there were we met some people that even flew into you know we were in toronto and spent some time with them it was just like it's really strange corners of the internet and not totally unsurprisingly many of them have like resurfaced as like nft guys now which probably isn't the most surprising thing in the world so <laughs> yeah it's been weird that is a question. Do you, you want to, a little bit later, jump down the realm of NFTs just a little bit with me? Sure. Why not? Yeah. Sounds great. So 
I see here that you were also a director in some place called Play VIG. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that kind of correlates to rivalry? I'm yeah. also seeing another group that you're a part of or that you co-founded, um, PMML. Yeah. Yeah. So PMML is just the parent company to rivalry. Um, and then it actually rebranded when we went public. It's PMML Corp or Public Corp. The name has some really ridiculous story that's pointless, but it, it owned the way that sports betting companies work is you have like the parent company and then every jurisdiction you get a license, you have like a subsidiary that holds the license because you need a local company to hold the license in that place. So for example, the Isle of Man, which is our main license has rivalry limited, holds that license. Australia, where we have a conditional license that should be going live shortly. We have like rivalry Australia, PTY limited or something like that. And then it's all like under the parent, the parent was called Pummel and it confused the hell out of everybody. Cause they're like, what's that? We always had to explain it. So we renamed it as we went public to just rivalry corp, just to like simplify everything. Yeah. So that's the same thing. <clears throat> play VIG or play VIG. It actually still exists and it's like kind of almost relaunching in a way, but that is a, uh, the way I describe it always, it's like inverted Twitch. So when you watch Twitch, you watch an ad and a percentage of the ad revenue goes to the streamer. Play VIG is yep. like the opposite. Before you play a game, you watch a full video ad and part of the revenue or the CPM of the ad goes to you. So you basically are monetizing your own gameplay and then you can use the um, percentage of the CPM that you receive to actually, like you can actually cash out if you like and just take straight cash out if you'd like. So it kind of has like a series of like competitions and quests. It's almost like, you know, player versus player for money. But what a lot of people have found that have built those products because so many come around and then so many fail is gamers have huge loss aversion on their own skill. So you put five bucks on yourself and then when you lose, you're like, screw this, I'm out. And yeah. what this is, um, it you you never put your own money in. You It, it is real cash because you're watching ads, but you're just, again, if you watch ads to watch people on Twitch, you're just doing the universe of that before you play a game and then you monetize like yourself essentially yeah. yeah okay well let's see i know rivalry is a thing and it is a like you mentioned a esports book well a bookie site essentially can you tell us a little bit more about rivalry and how that kind of came about and what you guys are currently doing Sure. So we were running Loot Market in 2016. We had a feeling, not that it was going to get shut down, but we had just had a sense that uh, building businesses in esports or gaming outside of the publisher is really difficult. And I think a lot of people have learned in the last couple of years, this is like an extremely difficult industry to build a business in. The publisher has to have so much monopoly. There's total yeah. asymmetry. There's like complete asymmetry in the power dynamics as well. It's not like traditional sports where the NHL does not own the intellectual property to the game of hockey. You and I can go play somewhere and charge someone to watch us and no one's going to show up and say we're using their IP commercially. Esports and gaming is like that. And it's like so difficult if you're not the publisher to do anything here. So, and we were really exposed to that with Loot Market because um, it obviously relied on Valve's API. You had to use Steam to log in and it was just super vulnerable. So we were looking at the space more from the perspective of like investor, but also what else could we build that could be compelling because we want to stay in the space. And the boxes we had would be things that are totally API agnostic because we were so exposed to Valve's API uh, using Steam. We're like, we don't want any business that relies on a publisher's API too risky. We wanted something that was game cycle agnostic because we said you can't predict the longevity of a new piece of IP. Like new game comes yeah. out, you don't know how popular or how, it's just impossible to know. Like the publishers are like 
you know, very light guardrails on a bowling alley. That's all they can really do to influence success. Too dangerous to place a bet on one game. And then the other is IP agnostic. We didn't want anything that could be construed as commercializing someone else's IP or, or tripping over that in any meaningful way. And sports betting on esports was the thing that really to our our belief is still to this day really is one of the few things maybe outside of like some media related assets is one of the few things that ticks all those boxes so if you're a sports book we are regulated by a sports betting regulator we can offer betting on anything that has integrity like you know how much rain is going to fall in dublin tomorrow we can put that on the mark on the site if we wanted so it doesn't really it doesn't it does not touch the ip we don't use any apis from publishers and we don't uh, overly invest in any particular game so if somebody you know, Valorant, for example, didn't exist a year or so ago. Now it exists. It's becoming popular. More people are betting on it. Odds get creative for it. We put it on the site and that's it. Like it's, you know, it's different from an esports team where you fund and finance an entire roster, build a whole thing around it. And all of a sudden, oh, people don't want to watch Apex anymore. So screw it. We're out. And you've like gone really all in. So yeah, so that was the thesis. And we'd also built, we, we had success with Loot Market. We felt we knew how to build like consumer products. We had a great software development team. We had to build teams, we had to build companies. Uh, we were just like excited about what was happening in the space and we yeah, ended up building Rivalry. Okay. So you mentioned regulating. Um, what about places like the Esports Integrity Commission and you know they kind of try to keep an eye on the things that kind of can go wrong when it yeah. comes to betting or you know manipulation of matches, that kind of thing? Yeah, we're, we're a member of ESIC they're they're the best thing that esports currently has from that perspective like i think they, they catch a lot of flack online i don't think it's totally deserved i mean the esports community is really brutal but i think what a lot of people don't realize like what they're actually doing on the back end which nobody sees because everyone just sees these rulings and they go crazy and criticize the way that they're done and honestly like we don't see a lot of that what we use esic for what most people do is we're a member as a sports book other sports books are members gambling regulators are members like the uk gambling commission our regulator and so on and then you have the tournament organizers as well and then when matches are happening if there's any suspicious behavior either the tournament organizer will basically communicate with esic and say hey that match kind of looked funny to us um, or if a sports book says hey we're seeing really strange betting on this like anyone else seeing that and then an alert will go out to everybody it's like a cross-reporting alert mechanism we get these like and not like you know relatively frequently and everyone then cross reports and say yeah this looks funny this should be investigated so it's actually like the best mechanism currently in place for everyone collaborating to determine if anything funky is happening competitively and what a lot of people also don't realize is like is that system in the sports books that are often the first to identify something wrong like before reddit and before twitter um so and it's the same thing in sports is, is it actually is increasing the odds that there's like fair play. So we like ESIC and I think it's the best thing for that right now. And then also there's just like quality measures that we have in place. So our odds provider and all the major quality blue chip odds providers and blue chip sports books, you just have a threshold of stuff you offer. Like we only offer ultra tier one and, you know, quality tier two, anything below that we don't do. And everyone can kind of determine what that is. You know, anything that I think is less than a five or $10,000 prize pool, we don't offer because there's usually integrity associated with prize money. Because if winning an event has less prize money than potentially throwing and placing a bet on a sports book and winning a bunch of money, then people are incentivized to throw a match. And I can honestly say like over the three and a bit years that we've been operating since the summer of 2018, there's been a single digit number of 
events that we've actually offered where there's been an issue, which honestly is very low compared to how many matches you think we've offered over three and a half years of esports. It's a lot. Uh, cricket or tennis in any given year, we'll see more individual proven match throwing events than all of esports. Like people don't realize oh, wow. this. Like, like it's really, it just seems bad because, oh, it's like video gaming. It must be so easy to throw. Like it's, it's really not like that. It's not that, it depends on what you offer. Like so long as you're offering you know, quality things, but it's not bad. And ESIC does a pretty good job. So, yeah. So something that you probably weren't aware of, um, I'm actually a, well, the company I founded is also a member of ESIC, nice. the Bahamas Esports Federation. So we were actually the first esports federation to become a member of ESIC. So I'm, I'm well aware of what you're talking about. And I'm glad to see that you're actually on that as well. Yeah. Yeah, we use that system. It's good. It's as good as it can be right now from my, from my perspective. So, yeah. um, so you've gone through a lot, and I'm going to touch on just one part before I, I get to the next question. But in your introduction, you mentioned that you and your twin brother we used to play World of Warcraft. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit more about that? Sure, I was a human priest. He was a gnome mage. We were on the server Drainer. <laughs> we were in a guild called Resonant Horizon, if anybody remembers that, that was on Drainer. And well, the funny thing about that is like we didn't understand, we were just stupid, we were young. We didn't realize that servers were based on time zones. Like this is just like how naive we were. And we joined the server and leveled to 60 before, because you didn't really need that many people to get to 60 until you were like at 60 and then you wanted to do the big raids 40 people you had to really you know logistically coordinate it we did not know we were in a west um uh western time zone like la type time zone. like i'm eastern we were like on an la time zone we did oh, not realize no. until we had 60 so we literally got all the way to 60 and we joined a guild and then it was like it was and we were in high, like we were in high school like grade nine or ten which was like freshman or whatever in, in the u.s and we the, like it's the first raid it was like molten core or something and it was like yeah raids that started at like 10 10 p.m our time which i guess was like you know 7 p.m like central whatever it is for for like mountain standard time so it was normal for them and we were like oh shit we're screwed so <laughs> our, our entire high school we were like exhausted because we were like up playing till like 1 2 a.m like even later sometimes and we were like absolutely dead so that was uh, <laughs> that was our world of warcraft experience it was fun though like it's really interesting because a lot of really successful people in general i've noticed from my generation were wow players it's like a really consistent theme it's it's funny like it's the people that came out of vanilla wow yeah it is a really interesting group of people i think yeah so i i don't regret it it was it was a ton of fun when you got into the raids it was you needed to be able to manage everybody you you needed to have enough information that you could strategize yeah. you can time things because a lot of the add-ins and plugins weren't necessarily there, especially no. for vanilla. No, that it was came in like Yeah, it was interesting because as a I don't know, I was like 14, 15, 16 years old, I guess. It was also the first time that like my brother and I had interacted with like adults is the wrong word, but just like different people in different places. Like now it's so common to where, you know, everyone's in online communities and meeting and interacting with people all over the world. It just wasn't the same in the early two thousands. And wow, at least for me, I guess like Xbox Live, but then wow was really the first especially because the server we were on it was the first experience we had with like different people i remember our guild leader worked at nasa and like i never met somebody and i was from you know oh, wow outside of toronto like not small town but you know relatively smaller 
I never met someone that worked at NASA. I thought that was like, that's crazy. Like it was, it was interesting. He was an engineer there. Like you just, yeah, there was like a whole spirit to it, like in like the prime of vanilla that hasn't been, at least from my perspective, has not been like replicated since. There's something like really special about it. Yeah, no. But with that in mind, what's your take on the future for esports and how things have been progressing, even with, because let's not forget technically rating was competitive video gaming back in the day yep. especially once they actually brought achievements to world of warcraft and you know world first and all that kind of stuff oh yeah you're asking specific to wow or just in general just in general yeah it's tough like i think like there's all yeah i think that at least league of legends dota CS and maybe Valorant and some mobile games are going to continue to be the most popular from a competitive perspective and a sports betting perspective. It's really difficult for new games to, to break in, maybe Halo, but that's just a bit of a throwback. Obviously, there's a whole like nostalgia element to it, so maybe the new Halo game will be successful. But if you think about it, like outside of like known titles, there hasn't been anything that's been breakout in a long time. It still is not super economic for esports teams, I know, to run competitive rosters. It's like really, really tough. So like esports is a weird place because it feels like it's more growth and more viewership and more excitement than ever but it's never been harder i think economically for teams or it's only just getting harder and harder economically for teams to make the whole thing work so <clears throat> obviously we're bullish and expect esports viewership and content to continue to grow but my view is that the publishers are going to have to increasingly subsidize it i guess i would say so the buy-in franchise models i don't think are going to have worked as people are going to find out and we, we've been very we've been against them for inception it's just it just didn't yeah all the dynamics of this industry were working against it being successful and then i think rainbow six has a great structure the way that they kind of do the rev share there's no buy-in the rev share is decent the roster costs aren't crazy you can kind of support it depending on the tier that you're in and then um the way that Valorant is doing like, you know, skins rev share and all this kind of stuff. I know Valorant, some players is becoming really stupid and expensive, but I think what's people, oh, yeah. gonna, my expectation is that more and more publishers are going to increase the way that they share the, at least the esports or competitive economy with the teams. So the teams can continue to survive because the publishers are ultimately always going to be the best monetizers of esports because what esports is for them is just a marketing spend that enhances the longevity of their IP and, the, and they can monetize it better. That's really all it is for them. Whereas for us, it's like art and the industry, but it's a bit of give and take. Like they don't want to take so much of the pie that it goes to zero because it does, it, again, it does support their IP and they can monetize their IP better. But I think they're going to have to do more and more to support the ecosystem, in my opinion. Like, they're going to have to give a, put a little bit more money in. The teams are going to be more incentivized to have rosters. Like, I think the esports that are going to succeed long term are the publishers that are going to best economically support the organizations, I expect, is what's going to happen. They're going to have to, like, incentivize big orgs to participate in their games is what I think is going to happen. Yeah, I think the, the main thing why the buy-in helps, and it's not even much... It's um, when you run into problems as an organization or like, let's say what happened um, with League of Legends and essentially two different organizations stopping someone from being taken by yeah, another yeah. organization. Yeah. It's, it's little things like that, that like I can understand, OK, well, you're doing this so that you have the funds to do it. But at the same time, you don't really need it because you're still getting the revenue from people watching, from the advertisements, from... Uh, people buying into the game and getting into it and this, that, and the next. And it's like, really? 
You're still yeah, asking for like a million something bucks just to buy in? Yeah, I remember seeing like when Mobile COD first was launched. I played that game a bunch when it was first launched. I don't remember. I think it was like in the first, or maybe it was like the new COD. It was like in the first two or three days it had done like 750 million in sales or some ridiculous number. It was in like a single digit number of days. I remember thinking I'm like, that's more than the total revenue generated in the entire esports industry in a year, right? Like it's just like Blizzard's, which arguably doesn't necessarily have even a top five esports title right now, but Blizzard's, Blizzard's, you know, Christmas quarterly cash flow, not even the revenue, like their cash flow is more than the revenue generated in all of esports, like top line. So it's just, it's, it's really, it's, yeah, it's tough. It's, it's super tough. And, and I just think that the publishers are going to have to sweeten the deal more and more to have the relevant esports organizations that bring the viewership and interest to an esport to elect to build rosters and invest and participate in their game. It's just, yeah, I, I think that's what's going to happen longer term for esports. I would like to see that happen. I'll put it yeah. like that. Yeah. So, with the world developing more and esports being uh, taking its time to, well, actually, I shouldn't be saying taking its time because with COVID, it's actually shot up quite a bit in terms of popularity yep. and people getting into the space. But also at the same time, you have other companies doing very interesting things, like calling themselves Meta. Yeah. And <laughs> so that element of it was a tie into the metaverse and now you're seeing people creating like virtual avatars people talking about that um people wanting to look again at vr and try to push vr as like the next step though we pushed vr with that a few years ago but like what's your take on the metaverse element of things I mean, when I used to spend hours bouncing around Iron Forge, I felt like I was in the metaverse. That's pretty much that's pretty no. much what it was. And I used to play Second Life as well. Not not very much. I thought it was really strange. But I played Second Life also like early like mid two thousands. That game was so weird in the mid two thousands. That was just like the weirdest place you could be on the internet. So it uh, I played like Habbo Hotel and all these games that are like also trying to rebrand themselves in the metaverse. Yeah, so. I saw a take on the on Twitter that I think a lot of people regurgitated, and I, I do the same thing. This, this isn't my, my my take on it, or this isn't my way to frame it, but I think this is all it is, and it's that the metaverse is just when the percentage of your time while awake, obviously, is spent more looking at some at a screen than it is not looking at a screen, and that that's the metaverse. And I I, I think because people are misconstruing the metaverse as like the Ready Player One, like a literal physical world where you live as like an avatar and do things like that, that will be a component of it. Like just entertain. I mean, that's kind of what Fortnite is in some ways, just like entertainment experiences that are in virtual places will be a part of things people do more. But yeah, the, the, the metaverse, what they basically say is the metaverse is more like a, uh, a moment in time than it is a place. I think that's the best way to think about it is like, are we at a place or are we at a moment in time where the amount of time we spend looking at a screen is less than not looking at a screen? I think we're getting close to that. I certainly spend more time looking at a screen than not in my day-to-day -day life. And that to me is all this is. I, I don't know if these avatar-based worlds like Decentraland and, and um, you know, there's, there's, there's a ton of them now. I, I don't know if that is literally going to be the metaverse or people are going to call it that. It feels like the metaverse is going to be like what the internet was the early 2000s, late 90s, where people talked about the internet the way they talk about the metaverse now, where it seemed like a particular thing, not like a tool 
or just like a framing of a piece of technology. That feels like what a lot of this metaverse web three stuff is, is that they're just tools. They don't increase your odds of success. You still have to build something amazing and they're just new tools to play with. And that's the, really the way that we look at it. And I'm sure, yeah, I mean, gaming is already kind of there in, in many ways, so. So I know a lot of people have been coming from the idea that, like what you mentioned, it's that Ready Player Two, or I don't know if you ever, um, if you're into anime. And yep, a little bit. Okay, so things like Dot Hack, for example, where you're pretty much like connected, or I guess Sword Art Online kind of took the idea as well. But um, you know, you're wearing this helmet, you go to sleep, and you know, now you're in this virtual world. I think a lot of people are taking metaverse to mean something along those methods where it's, you know, VR. I even think I, if I remember correctly, there was an article talking about someone uh, actually trying to make a neural link yeah. so that it actually works with like, you can, it'll work along when you start to sleep. And I knew someone was going to do it. To do it. I was hoping someone wouldn't, but yeah, I think anyone that's been playing games a lot, like it sounds like you and I have, doesn't think about the metaverse. Like it feels like the way that people talk about the metaverse is this Ready Player One thing are people that don't spend time on online communities and aren't messing around in Discord every night or playing games with their friends. It's like anyone I speak to that has lived in that world, like gaming, esports, whatever, doesn't see this as something overly novel. It feels like the rest of the world woke up to, oh crap, people spend a lot of time online, like, you know, jumping around in Fortnite. That's that's the metaverse. Like it feels like a really commercial thing that that of people who don't understand how people spend time on the internet lately <laughs> like that that's all it feels like to me i mean yeah i don't i don't know if it's going to be yeah because again people look at it like there's gonna be one winner like is facebook's metaverse going to be like the one or is it going to be this one it's not i don't see that's not at all how i think about it at least so Maybe I don't know, but that's not how I think I, about it. I think a lot of people are thinking about this, especially because of the rise of VTubers and yeah. things like that. So yeah. they're they're just jumping to that. And then of course there's the ever popular game on Steam. I won't say the name, but where you run around as avatars. Yes. So um but speaking of games and bringing this back to rivalry, I noticed that you guys actually have created your own game called rush lane can you tell us a bit more about that because i know a little bit earlier you also mentioned about people buying in to the games and stuff like that yeah so rush lane is we call like an mmogg it's obviously kind of cheeky play on mmorpg but yeah, massively multiplayer online gambling game it's really just like a mix of like marble race meets mario kart in a cyberpunky world the same as like you know people play those games on twitch where they join through chat and they see themselves populated into the game it's the same thing, but just in a regulated context. So you can put a buck behind yourself. So you enter the game, you have to play with other people. You cannot play it alone. You know, usually minimum of five up to 25 people. The race takes a minute and a half to two minutes. The track is completely random every time, like random segments. It's like a yeah, cyberpunky type universe with like familiar game elements like Minecraft and Dota and CSGO type elements. And you, we pay out proportionally the top five winners out of the pot and that's it. So, and it's same as, again, these Twitch games is completely random. You're not participating in the game. So rather than you betting on, you know, a virtual horse, which is on many other sports betting sites, you are the horse. Like you see yourself enter the game, your name appears. We're going to have more customization on avatars and stuff like this as well, as you can imagine. But it was built as like a, 
really entertainment and creating community. We don't have slots on our site, for example. We don't have people playing like Egyptian or jungle theme slots. It's just not really what we're about. And, you know, a slot, you can enter money in every like two to three seconds. Like you just hit it, it goes, you hit it, it goes. We just don't like experiences like that. Like you have to play this game with other people. It takes a couple minutes from like the lobbying to entering, to playing, to winning. Like you can't sit there and play it again and again. Like the most you can spend in three minutes is a dollar. Like it's the max you could spend. So it's just, it's not that kind of thing. And it was built also to be streamed. So major partners of ours, we run an event called Rushlane After Hours. It's in like a Blade Runner, Cyberpunk, the underground bar. They're kind of chilling and hanging in it with their, um, with their community. And then we've had, you know, 10, 11, 12,000 concurrent people watching streamers play this game. Their fans try to join and play with them. And it's just like a whole community entertainment wrapper around it. And it just was the first game to introduce this game lore, this world that we're creating. And we're going to continue to add games into it that are, again, community and entertaining, not repetitive slot machine, but based games and, and like low stakes and just kind of fun. And then creating more of that, again, community in the world where people can just have a place to like hang out. They don't have to necessarily play games. They can just like hang out in like the rush lane world and, you know, choose to play games or not, or just hang with other people and uh, live chat on the site or whatever it may be. That's, that's it. It's just like a, a low stakes, low pressure, um, chill environment. Uh, on rivalry and the first game is this racing game and we'll kind of keep adding into it okay so is it just how does the lobby work like do you need a special code to get into that one streamer's lobby do you just jump in and then you just jump in so yeah like you the lobbies have different names if it's busy then there will be multiple lobbies that open up if it's not then there's only there's only one you join you just have to have you know, registered on rivalry from a legal jurisdiction over the age of 18, all that kind of stuff. Obviously have deposited money in the site. You enter the game by putting a dollar stake in and then that's it, you populate in. Right now it's more static where there is like a waiting lobby area and you will see like your character appear in your name and then when enough people join, it starts and there's a live chat. But again, we're adding more mechanics and like free form to it over time to like expand it into like, yeah, almost like you're jumping around Iron Forge. There'll be like that kind of equivalent potentially where you're just like chilling in the world and you can maybe enter a game, maybe not, you can just hang out. So that's what it's gonna, that's kind of the momentum we're trying to build behind it. Okay. And now I know I saw where there seem to be things that kind of block you or like slow you down or whatnot in this game. Yeah. Like, what's that all about? Yeah, it's like Mario Kart. There's like stuff that will interact with other players. Like you hit explosions that slow you down. There's power-ups that can speed you up. We're adding more of that stuff in where, yeah, it's like picking up power. You know, again, the same as picking up the power-up ability in a Mario Kart game and you can interact and bounce off other players. So it's just adding more features like that just to yeah, make, it, make it fun, make it more entertaining. And um, yeah. Okay. So to jump back into Rivalry itself, um, you guys have an app for that or at least it seems like to be an app or is that just a website it's the website it was built mobile first so it just works really well on people's phones in our with our current license we don't have we can't have a mobile app but with our some of our regulated markets that we have coming up we will be able to have a mobile app so our expectation is sometime next year we will have a mobile app in addition to web but honestly almost everybody uses the web version on their phone anyways okay so how exactly does that work is it that you know a tournament is coming up you guys post about it and people start betting on it or like which which type of events do you really focus on we definitely focus on the three biggest titles like cs dota league and even not just for us but globally those three games are about 90 percent of esports betting so it's just 
how it's been for a long time. It's the same thing for us. So we have super active marketing efforts. We've got 20 plus social media channels. The monthly engagement and following on Rivalry is more than the aggregate of all of our peers in esports betting. So very followed kind of social accounts. We'll push out major events that are happening on there. And then our influencers, we got like 150 plus influencer network now, esports teams, original content we produce. You know, they'll, they'll talk about the events or just get people kind of motivated to check out the site. But I'd say the one thing at Rivalry, which is probably different than other sports books is, especially if you look at our socials, we do not talk about sports betting. So we get people excited by what's hap- what's coming up and you know we're, we're you know, very meme ridiculous and clipping things and talking about what's going on in the scene. But we don't tell people go bet here right now. Like it's that, that's not the style of marketing we've ever done. It's more Red Bull style where you know, Red Bull does, Red Bull in my opinion is like one of the greatest marketing companies in the world. They have one product though. They just sell, you know, if we're going to really simplify it, it's sugared water um, with caffeine in it. Like that's really all Red Bull is. But, yeah, pretty much. But, but the the marketing is insane. You know, they own a, a Formula One team. They run the most extreme events in the world. Any extreme athlete, if you're sponsored by Red Bull, you've like made it or the same thing in gaming now. Like there's a whole like, there's a whole ecosystem they've created, but really they make billions of dollars a year selling energy drinks. And all it's done for is when you go into the grocery store and you're walking to the energy drink aisle and your hand is more likely to go to the Red Bull can because like the brand is so seared in your brain and you associate with things that are like cool and amazing and like extreme, right? That's kind of how we do things. We're not trying to like shove betting down people's throats. It's more just like creating great experiences, supporting great people uh, and being just like a relevant brand in the space. So that if people are thinking about, hey, you know, want to throw five bucks on the League of Legends finals or the Worlds or whatever, you know, then rivalry comes to mind. Like that, that's how we market. And you mentioned that you have a few teams. Uh, I know I've seen names like Fnatic. Yep. Uh, if I'm going down this list, but I, I remember seeing others as well. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, we sponsored Fnatic. That was like our first big sponsorship in 2018. Then Furia in Brazil. Then uh, Zero Zero Nation, which used to be called Oplano, which is another CSGO Brazilian-based team. Boom Esports, which is a kind of Southeast Asian-based team that uh, we recently just sponsored. A bunch of like other smaller ones we we, we sponsored like beast coast in which is another uh, with our south american dota roster so we've done and then even much smaller team i'm trying to remember the names right now but we've, we've supported the you know when teams go on good runs that are clearly very small brand new in many cases the money from us is what supports like the entire team like all the salaries everything we will do that as well like we, we don't always just go for like you know, the name brands of the world. We've done a lot of smaller organization sponsorship where if a team yeah, clearly has resource needs, then we step in and it's not, you know, sweat off our back and we support the team and support what they're doing. That's great. So we, we do a lot of that. And we do the same thing with influencers. Like we do work with some of the biggest influencers in our key markets for sure. But we work with many like much smaller influencers. Talking like influencers that do, you know, sub 50, sub 20 views, like concurrent views on Twitch. On Twitch. So we go like, up and down the whole chain and it's just like part of the brand and, and everything we do and the same thing with like the events we run like we've run events that we don't take bets all on rivalry they're purely community-based events that are supporting like the ecosystem and relevant markets and that's it and we, we do all stuff like that okay interesting interesting so i have seen a uh an interview that you had on forbes <laughs> And you kind of got into some interesting topics with them. And I've, I've seen a number of other ones as well, like uh, on Medium with Authority Magazine, uh, Cheddar. Uh, but there was one p- 
part that really got my attention, and it was the uh, it was actually the one on Medium that was talking about the five things you need to create a highly successful career in esports. Yep, it's just those five things. That's all you need. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me if you would like to elaborate on any of these, but sure. I'm just going to be reading this off for my viewers. The first one was generally be passionate about gaming as an idea. And that is not so much an idea. Well, well, it's the, the difference between an idea and just enjoying playing video games because playing games will wear off versus yeah. you just wanting to be passionate about making this work. Yeah. Yeah, I think like people, a lot of people want to get into the industry because like, I love video games. I mean, so does like, you know, like more than 50% of the like, world now. Like it's just, of course. So I think you have to be really excited by like, even just like from a creative and like artistic perspective, like you have genuine passion and interest in it as like a creative outlet, I think is really important. And then also the idea of like what gaming can do is like, are you a believer in its ability to kind of connect people and, you know, create, um, yeah, create strands between different communities and different people. And can it, can it um, be like a positive force for humanity, even in a general way? Like, is it, is it a positive thing for people to be playing games and connecting and communicating with one another? Uh, yeah, do you think gaming can do, you know, is yeah, it's good for people with mental health, like all this kind of stuff. Like I personally think gaming as a medium is like a critical entertainment category for humanity. And I have like a deep belief in that. And like, that is important for me. But yeah, if I just like video games and was addicted to WoW, and I'm like, oh, maybe I should work in the video game industry. Like it just, I mean, there's so many people like that and they, they just burn out because it's, you know, and, and also it kind of kills your passion for like video games because you're like, yeah. you're mixing those things right so yeah there's a difference between just liking it because like it's fun and you love playing cod with your buddies versus like you have a genuine like passion and interest of like what gaming is about for society yeah a lot of people that will just take on gaming and streaming for that matter yeah, yeah. and uh they'll just burn themselves out trying to hit the the metrics and stuff like that yeah. and then they just lose a lot of them end up losing the quote-unquote passion they're just playing games or they'll take a break for a long period of time just because they needed that space to untangle everything. Yep. Yeah, you see this in like every creative outlet. Like if you watch, there's these great videos online. I love watching them of like filmmakers and even game, um, game producers where they describe, it's like they're like 20 minute videos where they describe like one scene in a game or like one scene in a movie. Like you can watch the Parasite director 20 minutes uh, do a breakdown of the first like 15 seconds of Parasite you can watch like Hideo Kojima does a breakdown of like a Death Stranding cutscene which is like a 30 second cutscene the amount of time and energy like he talks about things that not a single person noticed but him um but that and also you have to be that deeply into it but those are the people that are often successful like you have to geek yeah. out about things like at that level to really make it a career in my opinion so your next one was be kind and yeah. that's more so because, well, the community's small. Quite literally, you run around, you'll meet someone who knows another person who you may have not had the greatest relationship with. And, uh, yeah, if you say something bad, it's probably going to end up back at that person. Yeah, also, like, it's know. just, that's for, like, any profession, for sure, and just in general in life, but in esports in particular and there's just also there's like a lot of gatekeeping at least i found sometimes in this space like people are very like protective of their community they don't want to let people in 
that's just long term doesn't work either. Like if things if things become popular and mainstream, even though you thought you were one of the OGs, like this is just something that happens sometimes. You have to kind of accept it, and you're better off trying to be you know there as a active supporter, participant, and, and encouraging and educating people rather than you know being an ass. So I think that's just important. And that kind of lends into point number three, which is leave the quote unquote Reddit personality at home, aka don't be so sarcastic. Um, don't be an I told you so kind of person. Yeah. Yeah, you like you want to wish success for people. Like the most successful people are often the ones that also want other people to succeed. And they and, and when someone else has a success that you think you could have done, it felt like an ego hit to you. You should be supportive of it. So I find, yeah, the same thing in gaming is like just because of the type of people that happen to go into it is very like Reddit personality often. And in a professional environment, I'm not even going to say corporate, but just like in a professional environment where you have to collaborate with other people, it doesn't work. Like you want to water ideas like they're flowers and let them grow. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's to me how you can succeed and in general. So that's why I do everything is you, um, is to think about that. Yeah. So just as a quick thing for people listening, you can be a critique but don't be an ass. Like, yeah. don't just bash someone down. Give give suggestions. Give feedback. Otherwise, you're not really critiquing. Yeah, we tell, people, we tell people this in the company as well. Like, the culture at Rivalry is to give, like, very candid, transparent feedback. And there's a nuance, though, to doing that. You can do that as, like, be, like, an ass about it. And people feel you're just, like, trying to give it to them. And you can give people direct feedback in a way where they know you're trying to elevate them and make them the best version of themselves. And it's coming from, like, a place of love. And that's, like, a huge difference, though. It's really hard to strike that. But, yeah, the latter is the right way to do it because, yeah, like, you, yeah, giving critical feedback is super important, but it's the way that you deliver it, definitely. Which also goes into the offer to help elements of things. Yep. Um, I know people will be trying a lot of different projects and this it's not just esports this is just in general people will be trying a lot of different methods projects interests and if you can help them why not yep yeah, definitely and the last one that you said was to be open-minded to new games that rise in popularity wow you want to get into that one a bit more Sure. I mean, I kind of shout on the Overwatch League. I can admit that, but I didn't. I didn't shit on Overwatch. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I think the same with like Apex. I remember Apex had like a massive rise and then kind of fall really quickly. That's kind of coming back a little bit. But yeah, again, like people are very sequestered in their games and their communities, and if something comes in that might like threaten that, like it's the new MOBA or the new Battle Royale, it's like they they want to um, actively wish it to not succeed and kind of shit on it just because it protects their little fiefdom so you know uh not a good thing to do it goes back to all the other points is you want to wish success upon people that are trying new things it's very hard to build something and, very, and put it out in the world and try new things it's like the hardest thing to do businesses whatever creative doesn't matter so same with this like yeah new games come out and like you know there were hundreds of people that work like extremely extremely hard on it and you know give it a second to breathe yeah so i would like to thank you for coming on the show um we, i think that was oh actually i'm gonna have to cut that part out just a little bit no problem. um what's your thoughts on how the world is moving with this whole blockchain and nft thing especially how nfts are trying to, some of the game developing companies are trying to bring nfts 
into their space and getting some good clap back. Yeah. I think that will not be inevitable, but it will be more commonplace and people are going to have to come to accept it. Like an example I give to people is, I mean, I, I go back to WoW always because I just, it's just so much of what happened there to me is just what is being fulfilled now because I guess the technology is there, but I tell people like, who don't understand the value of NFTs that are of the same kind of demo from me and come from the same place as me, of which, which there's many, is if you played WoW, you know of the um, Ragnaros, which was like the hammer that you could, you know, uh, put together if you killed Rag, and then there's a whole other thing that goes to it. And I remember, it's like Solfer in hand of Ragnaros, that's right. I remember on the Battle.net forums, the first guild and the first person to get that, there was like a crappy you know, iMovie film little thing that somebody put up. I don't, even, I don't even think it was on YouTube at the time. I don't remember what it was, but it was like the guy walking through, I think it was uh, Alliance. It was a guy walking through Iron Forge, like slow, like doing walk and then walking out to the front and then like crafting it. And then everyone's like going insane, like right outside the front of Iron Forge. And I remember thinking like, could you imagine if that, like, because now we're all 15 years older and have more money and more disposable income. Like, could you imagine if like that was an NFT as in like put the NFT aside because NFTs are just like meme and ridiculous to say it sometimes, but just imagine like that was a original, like you knew that the first one crafted ever in the history of World of Warcraft was that one. It was a verifiable original and you could own it. Like when I say own it, yeah, you could own it in a wallet and you could, you know, you are the literal owner of that item in the game. Like that's it. Like you are the owner of it. And if you want to take it into WoW and play it on your character, great, but you own it. And you can display it in your wallet or whatever you want to do. And it's kind of like a flex. Like I know, myself included, there are many people that are now in their late 20s and early 30s that played the game at that time or that to me for my generation that was into that, it was like a zeitgeist moment on the internet when that happened. Like that was just like a big moment in like the history of the game. There are people that I know have spent a shitload of money to own that one. 100% guaranteed. Like I would want to own it. Oh, yeah. It's like, I honestly would want to own it and I would pay decent money to own it. So, and, and sustaining with even like the first like ride kill or the first, you know, like the first like guild to be like killed like Blackwing Lair. Imagine like all 40 members got like an original token that said like you were the first people in the history of this game to, to clear this. Like people want to own that. Like that's like a, to me, that's part of like internet history. So like that's all it is. I think, I think every single thing being NFTs and making it so ubiquitous, like a lot of stuff is going to have no value. Like obviously if like every single item in the world is an NFT, then like what's the value of like one versus like the 1 million? Like it doesn't matter. But those and it being transportable between games, like I don't know if that's ever going to happen. I don't know why publishers would do that. Like why would Val, like why would COD want somebody who spent $1,000 on Val skins to then take it into COD and then the COD ecosystem makes no money? Like I, I don't really know. Maybe there's like a like a transaction fee to bring it into the game but it's just so it's ridiculous to think about that ever happening i think i think the value of it is definitely going to be though if there is a way in these moments for game publishers to embrace nfts to memorialize really big things that happen where you're a first of a something and it is like a moment in time a moment in inter internet history that's relevant uh, that's like memorabilia that you would want to own like the for, for me at least like I, I think it is so um that's that's where i see value for sure but a lot of the stuff is just marketing now you know yeah. well yeah um as you're t as you were talking my mind went and it might have been because you mentioned it it went back to ready player one and like his whole quest to do these things first and like yeah. get to the prize and it's like 
did NFTs come because of this, or was this like just touching on it? Yeah, it's 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 like an, it's even like in the you know physical world. You know, people want to own um, you know, Michael Schumacher's helmet when he won his first World Championship, maybe like like True. like that has value and it's going to sit in your you know place somewhere. Ninety nine percent of the world's not going to see it. Maybe your friends are going to see it, but it's no different than an NFT that you flex online. Like they're both things people aren't going to really see ever. Um, <laughs> so I don't see the difference between those two things. So yeah, like I would love. Yeah, like I, I always use the rag example because people that played that game, it, like that helps them like make a click. I said like, imagine you could own the original rag hammer, like the first and the first one ever crafted in the history of that game. Yes, like people like that. People spend a lot of money on that right now. Absolutely guaranteed. Yeah. There are a lot of rich crypto bros that came out of wow that would spend a lot of money for that. In my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I literally have a friend that's in one of the other islands. He showcased his um because he's been working uh, cryptocurrencies for a while, and he showed he showed us his uh, portfolio. And I didn't know this man was this rich. Holy crap! <laughs> but yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but Stephen, I would like to thank you for coming on the show. Um, it's been great talking with you. And just learning more about rivalry, the things that are happening, and just this conversation on a whole. Uh, before you go, though, is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, no, no, I really enjoy the conversation as well. I appreciate it, but um, nothing, nothing left for me. Okay, great. Well, folks, if you want to find out more about rivalry, you can just simply go to, uh, what is it, rivalry.gg? Nope, com. Com. Sorry. Yep. Com. Yep. So rivalry.com. Do feel free to check out the Rush Lane game. And uh, we may find each other inside the lobbies. But until next time, folks, take care. Thanks for having me.